In looking at Israel in the late 1960s, you could be forgiven for thinking that Zionism had declined in relevance. If its foundational premise was to provide a haven for Jews to flourish as Jews, then it had achieved such a success that it didn't seem to be urgently needed anymore. Israel was an empire now, controlling territory three times its own size and more than a million Palestinians. It had a mighty army, a roaring economy, cities big and small, and played a significant role on the world stage. The establishment of the state and the law of return guaranteed citizenship for immigrating Jews. From archaeology to Torah study, Jewish religious, cultural, and historical life was assured. Civil rights guaranteed individual and group freedoms in a robust political system that, for all its faults, produced and maintained a Western-style democracy. Even the new Prime Minister, Golda Meir, lamented society's turn away from the collectivist, agricultural roots of Zionism in favor of a more urban, individualistic, money-focused worldview. And yet, there were still two million Jews trapped inside the Soviet Union who desperately needed Zionism. After Israel and the United States, the USSR was the third most populous Jewish country. But its Jews were stuck in an oppressive system that denied them the ability to live openly as Jews, and much more persecution beyond. Although the Soviet Union had once made a brief go of supporting Israel, it had succumbed to Joseph Stalin's anti-Semitic, anti-Zionism paranoia. When the Six-Day War's victory inspired hundreds of thousands of Soviet Jews to try to emigrate to Israel, they were denied. This denial of emigration became the symbolizing feature of the Soviet Jewish experience. It moved millions of Jews worldwide, especially in the United States and Israel, to agitate for their relief. For decades, Jews had worried that behind the communist Iron Curtain, Jews had lost their Jewish identity. But the Six-Day War awakened the world to the opposite. Hundreds of thousands of the Soviet Union's Jews had held fast to their Jewish lives despite the incredible hardships and maintained a deep devotion to Zionism in Israel that they now hoped would set them free. The question was whether those Jews could be rescued. We're talking today about the beginnings of Soviet immigration to Israel, what would eventually become one of the largest demographic groups in the country, influencing everything from science to culture to politics. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. The very first act of the Israeli government in May of 1948 was to abolish all limits on Jewish immigration to the new state. It was more than just symbolic. Open immigration was the policy vehicle that fulfilled the Zionist vision. In order to be free to live as Jews in the Jewish homeland, you have to be able to move there. It was this automatic right to immigrate, as much as the actual creation of the state, that was one of the greatest and most powerful successes of Zionism. It ended an impasse that perpetuated the state of Jews as refugees. For while Jews were free to leave, say, the United States or Canada or Western Europe and move wherever they wanted to, it was the British colonial government in Palestine that severely limited Jewish immigration to avoid angering the Arabs. Israel opening up that first day of existence in May of 1948 abolished that barrier. 
never again would a Jew be a stateless refugee with nowhere to go. But once Israel was created and opened up, the barrier for some Jews shifted to their own countries. The Jews of the Middle East and North Africa were more or less permitted to leave, a better term would be forcibly kicked out, their wealth seized along the way. Many thousands were rescued in a series of daring Israeli military operations, and still several thousand remained in the Arab world. But what we're talking about today is the glaring exception to free emigration, the Jews of Eastern Europe who lived in the Soviet Union and its communist sphere of influence. You had 100,000 Jews in Romania, 45,000 in Hungary, 30,000 in Poland. Different countries had different emigration policies, ranging from generally open to mostly closed. But none were as strict as the Soviet Union itself, home to somewhere between 2 and 3 million Jews by the end of the 1960s. They lived under severe official discrimination. But at the same time, many were highly educated and particularly significant in the Soviet Union's scientific and cultural space, as scientists and doctors and writers and much else. And they also had a substantial intercultural life centered around the Yiddish language, from schools to theaters to literature. For a brief moment in the late 1940s, Israel had the support of the Soviet Union and its genocidal leader, Joseph Stalin. Socialism found expression in the leading strain of labor Zionism, which had its roots in Eastern Europe and applied many of the ideas of worker liberation and social revolution to the development of the Jewish homeland. Soviet-style communism even had a brief but vocal following in the kibbutz movement. So when it seemed in the late 1940s that Israel was going to be oriented towards a pro-Soviet socialist-style system, Stalin was happy to support. But Israel soon turned more westward, and in the paranoid calculus of Stalin and his government, that casts suspicions on the Jews. The historian Howard Sacker writes that Stalin went after the Jews as part of his wider campaign against deviationist elements, as well as the classic anti-Semitic hatred of the Jews to which he personally ascribed. But more than that, Sacker writes that the most essential factor was that the Jews were the one Soviet nationality in which a majority of their population lived outside the Soviet Union. And they lived in Western non-socialist countries, and within an Israeli state that was looking to the Western democracies. And so Stalin and the Soviet Union turned on Jews in a major way. Every aspect of their lives was severely limited, from which schools they could attend, what jobs they could have, and especially how they could maintain both their religion and, crucially, their ties with Jews outside the Soviet Union. And so the Jews of the Soviet Union lived with a cruel irony. Howard Sacker writes, quote, They were allowed neither to assimilate, to live a full Jewish life, nor, in common with other Soviet citizens, to emigrate. End quote. Many Soviet Jews gradually lost their Jewish identity within this oppressive system, but others kept the flame alive, hidden within. After the incredible victory of 1967, they could no longer keep it in. Bursting with pride, joy, solidarity, and hope, they applied by the hundreds of thousands for permission to emigrate to Israel. They were all denied.
The Soviet Union did occasionally allow a trickle of Jews to leave in the 50s and 60s. A thousand this year, 1500 the next. Israel agreed to keep it all secret. Howard Sacker writes that this gentleman's agreement prevented the Arabs from questioning why their top supporter was enabling more Jews to live in Israel, not less. By the eve of the Six-Day War, however, this agreement fell apart when Jews in Israel and the United States began publicly agitating against Soviet discrimination. After the utter humiliation of themselves and their Arab allies in 1967, the Soviets closed the door even tighter. They initiated an even more cruel campaign of anti-Semitism to combat the upsurge in Jewish identity after the Six-Day War. Now, there were some exceptions to the heavy oppression of Soviet rule. As with so many things, the farther you were from the center of power, the more freedom you had to live your life. And that was the case with the Jews of Georgia, a tiny Soviet republic nestled in the Caucasus Mountains up against the Black Sea, a thousand miles from Moscow. This was a place with more than 2,500 years of Jewish history. They were generally better off than Jews elsewhere in the Soviet Union. They were freer to prosper economically, freer to worship, freer to live more openly as practicing Jews. And anti-Semitism in Georgia was comparatively a lot less. And Zionism was secondary only to religion in their Jewish identity, where they consumed information about Israel and celebrated its national holidays. The writer Isabella Taborowski writes that, quote, These Jews did not need to go to Israel to escape poverty or anti-Semitism, end quote. So she asks then, what was behind their passionate drive for Israel? The answer comes from a remarkable letter written by 18 Georgian Jews on August 6, 1969, and addressed to Prime Minister Golda Meir. The 18 Jews asked that Golda send the letter on to the United Nations Human Rights Commission, publish their plea in the press, and broadcast it in Russian over the Voice of Israel radio station. It was the first time that Soviet Jews had dared ask publicly to be allowed to emigrate. They wrote, quote, For the time of fear has passed, and the time of action has arrived, end quote. For months now, they wrote, they had waited for their application for emigration to be approved, they had sold their possessions and quit their jobs in anticipation of leaving, only to be met with silence. Quote, Our destiny is of concern to no one. End quote. The 18 wrote that they were not looking to leave because of racial or religious discrimination. Instead, they reached deep into the past to understand their solidarity with the Jewish people and with the land of Israel, two components of Jewish identity that they found indelible, as essential as faith and tradition. From the Romans through the Inquisition, the Nazis and Russia, the 18 wrote that Jews had endured great suffering to maintain their identity. Quote, And although they walked this earth without refuge, God found a place for all. And although their ashes are scattered to the winds, memory of them lives. In our veins flows their blood. Our tears are their tears. The prophecy has come true. Israel has risen from the ashes. We have not forgotten Jerusalem and she needs our hands, end quote. Lest anyone be tempted to dismiss the 18 signatories as a small group, they made clear that behind them stood the souls of millions of Jews. Quote, they say there are only 12 million Jews in the world, but he errs who believes that there are only 12 million of us. For with those who pray for Israel are hundreds of millions of those who did not live to this day, those who were martyred, who are no longer with us, they march with us in the same column, 
unvanquished and immortal, they who transmitted to us traditions of struggle and faith, end quote. They couldn't understand how in the late 20th century it was still possible to forbid people from living where they wanted to. They called on the United Nations to uphold the principles of self-determination and human rights to let them emigrate. Golda Meir read out their letter on the floor of the Knesset, where politicians of all stripes were deeply impressed by the brazen, dangerous public appeal of Jews who still desperately needed the promise of the state of Israel. Quote, we will wait months and years. If necessary, we will wait all our lives, but we will not renounce our faith and hope. We believe our prayers have reached God. We know our appeals will reach people. For what we are asking for is little. Let us go to the land of our forefathers. End quote. It was a pure distillation of the founding principles of Zionism, the Jewish right to self-determination. And though it hailed from a different time and place, Isabella Taborowski writes that it still holds relevance to today's questions about, quote, identity, loss of connection to Judaism and Jewishness, and ultimately, the possibility of vanishing from history that confronts us as well, end quote. Taborowski writes, quote, Against our tediously one-note conversations about Israel, the passion and the longing of the 18 tell us something that we ourselves seem to have forgotten— Preoccupied with our complaints and criticisms, our hurt feelings and righteous indignation, have we not let something deeper and more meaningful about our connection to Israel slip away? End quote. The letter of the 18 is a reminder of how powerful was, and for some still is, the need for the Jewish state. The letter brought international attention to the plight of Soviet Jewry and galvanized the American and Israeli Jewish communities, and the American and Israeli governments, to take more forceful action on their behalf. But still, the 18 and their families and hundreds of thousands of others waited for their emigration. They became known by the name Refuseniks, because the Soviets refused to issue them exit visas. But some Soviet Jews weren't content to wait. The Antonov AN-2 is a Soviet-made single-engine biplane that looks like it can't fly, but actually flies quite well and in incredibly harsh conditions. Its passenger version seats around a dozen people. In June of 1970, a group of refuseniks made a plan to steal one. Pretending to be a wedding party, they bought all the seats on an upcoming flight, which is actually kind of genius. One of their leaders was himself a former military pilot who knew how to operate the AN-2, so the plan was to force the pilots out at takeoff, fly to Sweden, and then make their way to Israel. They called their plan Operation Wedding. But when they showed up at the airport, they were arrested by the KGB. Their plot had leaked out. In the trial for treason, the two leaders, Mark Dimschitz, who was the pilot, and Edward Kuznetsov, were sentenced to death. Everyone else was given prison sentences from 4 to 15 years. But between the 1969 letter of the 18 and the increasingly visible public campaigns to support Soviet Jewry, international attention focused like a laser on the trial for Operation Wedding. Jews protested throughout the United States, Israel, and Europe, and non-Jewish Western officials and diplomats also pushed the Soviet Union to both commute the sentences and allow for more immigration. The Soviets were surprised by the pressure campaign, and it worked. 
the two death sentences were reduced to 15 years. Eventually, all the would-be hijackers would be released in exchange for Soviet prisoners elsewhere. And nor were any of the 18 punished, although the Soviet authorities made efforts to discredit them and refute their allegations about life under communist rule, the glare of the spotlight protected them from further retaliation. Still, it would take them a year and a half to get final approval for immigration. And in the meantime, thousands of Jews were being let go. Howard Sacker writes that between 1967 and 1970, only 4,600 Soviet Jews were allowed. But between 1970 and 1980, it would be at least 250,000. The Soviets still made emigration lengthy and arduous, but things were softening just a bit. By now, Israel had discarded the clandestine nature of its efforts to enable immigration. From now on, it was full-throated advocacy on behalf of Soviet Jewry, led by Golda Meir's government. For her, this was a special cause. These Ashkenazi Soviet Jews were very much her people. After all, she had been born in Ukraine, and her brand of Zionism was the socialist labor values embodied by Eastern European Jewry. In 1948, she had arrived in Moscow as the new State of Israel's first ambassador to the Soviet Union. Arriving at the main synagogue for Rosh Hashanah, she found 50,000 Jews chanting her name in the street, a show of affection that she never forgot. Quote, I couldn't grasp what had happened or even who they were, and then it dawned on me. These good and brave Jews had come to demonstrate their sense of kinship and to celebrate the establishment of the State of Israel together with us. End quote. Golda's government not only devoted rhetorical and financial resources to the cause of emigration, but legal ones as well. In 1971, the Knesset updated the Law of Return, Israel's nationality law guaranteeing citizenship for Jewish immigrants. The revision allowed any Jew to become an Israeli citizen just by expressing his or her desire to emigrate, even if they hadn't yet arrived in Israel itself. This was, of course, aimed at the Soviet Union's Jews, but it was also controversial. The idea that one country can unilaterally declare as citizens the citizens of another country opens up all kinds of problems. So it wasn't invoked very often, but instead was another tool designed to further highlight the Soviet Union's ongoing repression. Most of the refuseniks in this era who left went to Israel, which proved a boon for the country. Howard Sacker writes that Israel's primary purpose in this campaign to free Soviet Jews was less to improve their status than to, quote, ultimately acquire their presence and talents for the growth of the Jewish state, end quote. Although many emigrating Jews were old and impoverished, many others were accomplished professionals, especially in areas of science and technology that Israel needed. To encourage and support them, Israel bent over backwards to accommodate the relatively comfortable lifestyle many of them had had in the Soviet Union. That meant nice apartments in upscale neighborhoods, plenty of job opportunities with good salaries, and hundreds of millions of dollars spent on health and education. This first aliyah, or wave of immigration, would lay the foundation for an even bigger one starting after the fall of the Soviet Union in the 1990s, when over a million Jews would come into Israel. In the meantime, Soviet Jews were quickly welcomed and integrated into mainstream Israeli society. Which was all well and good, and a testament to Israel's commitment to the fundamental Zionist values of Jewish rescue and relief. Still, the Soviet Aliyah exposed deeper underlying problems in Israeli society, ones that were rapidly bubbling to the surface. 
Tens of thousands of Jews remained stuck in Arab countries, persecuted there as much as in the Soviet Union. But more to the point were the hundreds of thousands of Mizrahi Jews already in, in Israel who had been coming from the Middle East and North Africa since the founding of the state. They couldn't help but notice that while the Soviet Union's Jews were welcomed with open arms, guaranteed employment, generous housing, and quality education, Mizrahi Jews hadn't gotten those things. And 20 years later, still hadn't. In some areas, like the Musrara neighborhood of Jerusalem, struggling Mizrahi were gentrified out in favor of incoming Soviet Jews. It was only with their arrival that state and city resources poured in to improve living standards, at which point Mizrahim were priced out. So Goldemeyer's focus on Soviet Jews drew the ire of young Israeli Mizrahim who were disgruntled by the state of the country and their second-class place in it. They demanded a pace of change that the aging Zionist revolutionary wasn't thrilled about. And so in the early 1970s, Golda found herself facing off against an organized movement of young people who gave themselves a provocative name, the Black Panthers. That's next time. As always, I'm at jewodono.com and my email is jewodonopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Heathrow. See you later. <laughs>